Um, okay, so yes, indeed, I am wearing a suit and tie today rather than the usual ID getup, which is often, um, we've been labeled the worst dressed uh, specialty in the hospital compared to our cardiology and GI colleagues. But um, very glad to be here. Um, so I, again, I'm an infectious disease doctor, and you're like wondering why I'm giving this talk. Well, I think um, one thing that happened about 10 years ago when they were talking about expanding the workforce for, to treat hepatitis C, there were hepatologists saying, oh no, people don't know about the liver, there's no way they can do it, they all have to come to hepatology. You know, I think that was kind of a pre prevailing view. Over time, many of them came over to like, well, we kind of can't see all these patients, there's so many of them. You talk about like card-carrying clinical hepatologists where that's their specialty, it's numbers in the hundreds, and you just saw in, throughout the country. And you just saw the numbers of the people not needed to treat. And so if they want to see 100,000 patients each, great. But uh, that's not going to work out. And so that's what we're all part of today, is learning about the liver, learning about um, how to manage things without necessarily that additional barrier of needing an, uh, a hepatitis C specialist or a liver specialist even, since many things can be managed on your own. And, and those guys are really busy. They're very um, sometimes um, accessible. And they'd rather like manage things um, sort of remotely by phone rather than uh, see the patient regularly, I think. Um, so anyways, um, we hope by the end of this talk you won't be too confused by all the different ways that we can ascertain fibrosis state. In the end, you can learn one or two of these really well and uh, use them in clinical practice. Um, how do we counsel patients regarding advanced fibrosis? They're really, with hepatitis C, we can counsel about the medications. But as you just heard, they're like safe, effective, eight to 12 weeks for the most part, and you're done. So what we're mostly counseling about these days are a liver health, especially for those with advanced fibrosis. And then, um, as we'll talk about, the prevention of reinfection for higher risk individuals. So um, that's a different talk. And then we'll at least be able to state the kind of pros and cons for each of these fibrosis measurements. Okay. So. Let's take a step back and say, why is the ascertainment of fibrosis important? Mike alluded to this in his talk, but in the end, there's a big difference whether you cure someone with low levels of fibrosis versus those who um, have higher levels in terms of how you're going to treat them or follow them going forward. It doesn't affect the treatments too much, but it, 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 it really does matter for a prognosis in the future. And so we'll talk about the counseling points that I've integrated into practice regarding the liver as a not card-carrying, but a pseudo-hepatologist, I guess. Or, or. Um, so how does one diagnose cirrhosis? When you tell a patient cirrhosis, what happens? And um, you know, I think uh, M Mike and many of you may have been there in the first days of HIV giving this diagnosis of HIV when there weren't treatments and there weren't um, sort of ways to, um, to mitigate um, AIDS at that time. Now, when you tell a patient, I think you have cirrhosis, it's kind of important to, to, to tell them, well, that doesn't mean like, oh, God, you're going to necessarily need a liver transplant. You're going to necessarily develop liver cancer. There are risks involved, but we all have patients who've had cirrhosis diagnosed 20, 30 years ago who are completely fine. Nothing's happened to them over the years. And so it's not one of those diagnoses, you know, like another one that starts with C, like cancer or something, where it becomes very serious in one, one of these things. There, there's ways to mitigate risk. All right, so, um, so it's really important to at least figure out what the risk of fibrosis is in your hep C infected individual. It determines the urgency to treat to prevent those complications. So um, 
Insurance approval. So you need to do something to check off that little box on that Medicaid form. Some of you are nodding already. You guys know there's this whole section. Um, now, fibrosis is variable. So, uh, you know, there are ways to predict who has more fibrosis or not. You can have the duration of infection. Clearly, a 60-year-old baby boomer is more at risk for cirrhosis than a 21-year-old who's recently diagnosed, much more at risk. Uh, there are other factors, HIV being a major one, which accelerates the liver progression process. Alcohol use, obesity, fatty liver that accompanies obesity. All of those, you can kind of throw in your gamish, but you can meet someone who's age 60, has HIV, it was uncontrolled for years, and um, yet they're, they have zero fibrosis. So, I mean, you can't just look at a patient and do this math and figure it out. You can kind of guess, but that's why this more specific testing is often necessary. Finally, the, you know, we won't talk about this too much more, but the initial tests that you use, HCV, RNA, and ALT, the, um, they're not markers that predict how much cirrhosis someone has, how much fibrosis, I should say. Patients are obsessed with these levels. You know, now that you can log in as a patient and see, you know, <laughs> they, they can say, oh, it went up from 200,000 to 400,000, and you're like trying to explain, well, you know, just relax. That's not predicting anything. And so, and similar for ALT, while um, persons with normal ALTs do progress on average a little bit less, you definitely can see advanced fibrosis in those who had ALTs within the normal range all their lives. All right, so sometimes cirrhosis just, when they walk in the office, smacks you in the face because it's present on physical exam. So um, this is a belly with um, marked um, ascites and venous and the uh, umbilicus is sticking out. This is um, uh, jaundice, pretty obvious. This is palmar erythema, okay? Um, and this is not something you would see on physical exam, but you look down into the um, esoph esophagus and you start to see varices. So these are pretty obvious signs that something's wrong and that the patient has um, signs of either liver disease and cirrhosis and or portal hypertension. Now, I'm going to separate those out a little bit because you can have portal hypertension without cirrhosis. There are certain conditions that do that. There's famously in HIV, these sort of older drugs, DDI and whatnot, was associated with a non-serotic portal hypertension. There's diseases like schistosomiasis, which produces um, portal hypertension without the attendant liver disease. But in the end, hepatitis C causes portal hypertension through cirrhosis. Cirrhosis is classically a histologic diagnosis, all right? Now, we'll be telling people that you may have cirrhosis without doing liver biopsies. But in the end, if you go back, this is how we diagnose cirrhosis um, truly. And I'm sorry about the formatting issues here, but um, you go from a normal sort of soft baby liver, you know, nice and soft, and move it to a cirrhotic liver, which looks quite different on a macroscopic basis. On a microscopic basis, you can also see um, movement from no fibrosis, mild fibrosis, moderate to severe fibrosis, and then cirrhosis. And blue on a slide in a liver biopsy is bad. And so that's what you're seeing there. Blue can either mean the nucleus of inflammatory cells, or in this case, um, the collagen that deposits in the liver, sort of connective tissue. And here at the beginning stages, you just see some around portal tracts, but then you begin to see what's called bridging fibrosis. 
across portal tracts. But at this point, the blood flow through the liver, remember the liver's like handling a lot of the blood flow at any given moment, right, from the GI tract, from its own artery. And um, <clears throat> it's when it reaches this level where patients may or may not have impaired blood flow through the liver and the backup, the portal vein, hypertension, and the attendant complications. Now, another important thing, and again, sorry about the formatting, is that there are um, different scales that are used. And um, so your pathologist may prefer one or the other, depending on their training. And so um, there's the usual in the, um, all the treatment, um, uh, hep C treatment studies, they use the Medivir scale, which goes from zero to four. So that's why in most of the guidelines work, if you look at that or if you start to dig into these studies, you'll just see F0 to F4, F4 meaning um, cirrhosis. But there is this alternative scale, which has been wide use in many parts of the country, so just be aware of that. And so there's a zero to six scale as well. So what an F4 means in that scale is different, okay? All right, and uh, again, the ways giving a patient cirrhosis as a title affects management. So we've already talked about screening for hepatocellular carcinoma, all right? Liver cancer in our country is the one solid tumor that's actually rising in incidence. You know, breast cancer is flat, lung cancer is flat, you know, um, colon cancer. Liver cancer is rising due to several factors, including viral hepatitis, but also um, fatty liver. Um, and so it's ultrasound or other imaging every six months. This is from studies showing it's cost-effective in Taiwan, um, where there's a high rate of hepatitis B-related liver disease in particular, and they found that that six-month interval was ideal. Now, what the actual guidelines of ASLD state are six to 12 months, and why is that? It's to give some leeway so you don't get sued if it's at seven months. You know? So six to 12 months is what they want, but really you should be aiming for that six to seven-month window rather than 11 to 12, as we just heard from Mike. Um, but that's the reason they put it in, is so, you, so they can't get sued if it's 10 months later. That's one reason, I should say. Um, so endoscopic screening for varices. So someone with cirrhosis then becomes a candidate for early interventions for varices. You can do banding, you can place them on beta blockers to reduce risk of variceal bleeding, which is very life-threatening. And I've heard different things from different talks. So you get to hear like an ID's perspective, sitting in a room, hearing from seven different hepatologists, because there is some subtlety in terms of how they present things. Um, the one I go with in terms of who gets um, screened for varices are um, persons with either, as you'll see, higher scores on their non-invasive fibrosis imaging, so people I'm worried about, or people that I know have portal hypertension, whether it's splenomegaly on the um, ultrasounds, or um, not everyone with cirrhosis, since some people with cirrhosis will not have splenomegaly, some patients will be okay. There's kind of, again, I keep alluding to this, but there's kind of cirrhosis with a small C, and then there's cirrhosis with a big capital C, you know, where, where you're more worried about the patient. We'll go over that. Hepatotoxicity. So in some cases, you'd worry more about patients um, receiving um, certain hepatotoxic agents. We encounter this in TB therapy all the time in ID. Um, where we're just more worried if we're aware of um, more advanced liver fibrosis or more consequences if there's a liver toxin. And then vaccinations, one thing that's added, including universal um, flu and hepatitis A and B, for cirrhotic patients, I think pneumococcus is indicated. So, um, uh, so that's one, another way it affects management. Now treatment, it really depends on the regimen and the situation. As you'll see, um, one of the 
primary pangenotypic regimens, if they're naive to therapy, they, get, they sort of all get 12 weeks, whereas another one, it goes from eight to 12 weeks. We'll go over that detail later. So it can matter. So that's why the insurance companies may want you to do it, even though in one case it doesn't matter, in one case it doesn't, it, I mean, so there's ways in which it affects the drugs that you treat, but not always. This is one medication, elbazir grisoprevir, where uh, you notice if you take the SVR rates, again, fantastic, aren't they? But if you stratify by cirrhosis or non-cirrhosis, it didn't seem to matter. So for this one, cirrhosis is not in the equation for primary therapy. It turns out a resistance-associated mutation or substitution is in the equation, but liver disease did not matter. And so as we simplify, and I apologize for the trade names, I'll try not to say them out loud. Um, that's our mandate for CME. But um, cirrhosis um, uh, can matter again for um, certain patients. And so it's really, the, again, this glucaprevir piperantesvir, which I'll talk about as GP going forward, where that extension does happen, even for naive patients. And for lidipasir sofosivir, um, which um, it's actually getting harder to get in my state, we've moved on, but uh, if they are non-serotic and have a lower HCVRNA, they are eligible for a shortened course, which is very good for cost savings. All right, so we want to be somewhat case-based. So you have a 59-year-old man, compensated cirrhosis, chronic hep C. When you look on his body, he doesn't have like edema in his ankles. He doesn't have like the big belly or anything, but he does have a few scattered spider angiomata. Are you guys familiar with what that is? Kind of look on the skin. They have to be relevant. They're usually above um, the nipples, and they're on the back or the front, and they're just these blanching little things that look like spiders. Now. Be very careful talking to patients. Oh, you have a spider, you know. <laughs> they don't like that term. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of terms in medicine <laughs> that we use that we have to be careful with. All right, and then um, you can calculate what's called a MELD, and I'll show you what that is later. It's a model of end-stage liver disease, and it's just a, a calculator of laboratory values. And seven is low. When you look at his labs, and Billy Rubin's 0.8, SGOT 95, PT is 80. Platelets, though, are 133. So that's below the usual cutoff of around 150,000. So the ultrasound, which he happens to have, just a routine ultrasound, shows small splenomegaly. All right, so here's an ARS. What's the most likely cause of death? Hepatocellular carcinoma, variceal bleeding, cardiovascular disease, hepatic encephalopathy, or something else. And um, Scott, you mentioned, do I go to the next slide? Okay, you can vote right now. It'll come up. There's some music. I should have worn a different suit. You know, it's Halloween. I could have, I could have, I could have put that costume on. All right. Do we have enough answers? Okay. All right. This is a savvy audience because um, usually people start to obsess over which of the liver problems are the number one cause of death. Well, as it turns out, just like any 59-year-old man, cardiovascular disease and cancer, those are major causes of, of, um, of uh, death in this population, and it's actually more likely in the end uh, than dying of a liver, these specific liver complications, each individual one. So, uh, so it just uh, emphasizes the importance of things like you know, other primary prevention, smoking, a huge one. So I mean, sometimes I spend more time about quitting smoking than anything else with my hep C patients and trying to help their primary care out in terms of like motivating um, them to quit smoking. Um, and statins, 
So I, I don't go into the data in this talk, but I've sat through talks. I mean, statins are generally safe for the liver. And you know, there's some, there were some concerns about in the past or whatnot, but I hope the message is out there that you can use statins uh, in most situations. Now, there will be situations where you've got to pick the right statin, which you'll hear about. All right. Um, so we prevent other viral infections that would accelerate the process, right? So there are definitely populations where you really want to prevent HIV through risk reduction. And um, unfortunately, uh, in our, um, there's this famous Scott County outbreak of HIV. We'll talk about that later. Um, but we're actually having one in our state as well. Uh, hepatitis B, huge. So hepatitis B has reemerged. Um, hepatitis A as well. I should put that up, but I'll put it up later. Um, weight gain. So that's another counseling item. If you can reduce the steatosis, um, that, that can um, also result in slower progression. I mean, patients often want to know what they can do outside of being treated, right? And so that's one of the major things that you can work on. And in my practice, what I do is, A, I don't necessarily go for that liver biopsy to look for fat right away. What I do is I treat, and I see whether the ALT normalizes. If the ALT is still up, then they could have that process known as non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, and then I begin that workup. In the old days, we used to kind of identify that beforehand. Now, I just do it kind of after. If I see things settle down significantly with their ALT, sometimes I'd leave that alone and just watch it. Um, alcohol use. You know, when can I have my next drink, doc? Another common counseling point. And uh, the hepatologist would say, never, um, if you have advanced fibrosis. Now, it's funny, in France, like different cultural norms, they, they're like, oh, glass of wine every day, no problem, no problem, you know? It's just like cultural. We're the only country that like banned alcohol for many years, right? So, so we're, we're more used to telling people that. So, um, and the other ironic thing about hepatologists, other than their suits, is at the liver meeting, so to speak, they love to drink. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. You wonder what ID people do when they're at their ID meetings to misbehave, but it's amazing. All right, here's my prop. So um, coffee. So many of you have coffee, right? Turns out that coffee may have a protective effect in many different areas of, of liver disease. All right? I see some of you nodding and smiling. This has resulted in applause in some places. They're like, yeah, because so, we're all, many of us are addicted. But, um, and I have no stock or disclosures regarding Starbucks investments or anything. So. Um, but there are multiple studies that when you look, there's an inverse association with coffee and development cirrhosis. And um, you can look, even look at all-cause death. There's one New England Journal study that shows effects, even with decaffeinated coffee, of um, uh, this is a very large population-based study of it being protective of all-cause death. Now, there are certain patients where coffee is problematic. It causes heartburn, which then results in PPI, which then results in problems with some of our meds. But, uh, and some patients have trouble sleeping. And so uh, you got to restrict the coffee to the morning, et cetera. And so um, really, um, you know, this is one thing. Because patients, you're saying, you're taking away my alcohol. You're telling me I can't smoke, all these other things. And well, at least you can drink your coffee. And this is a co-infection cohort, which demonstrated this. Because um, you're wondering, like, is there some confounder or whatnot? And they looked at liver-related deaths in a large cohort of 1,000 um, patients. And what you see is that hep C-related causes was important. Uh, at this time, this is like in an era before we were able to treat a lot of folks. So that's why there's a lot of mortality. But then non-AIDS, non-HCC cancer was important, and AIDS-related deaths. But when you look at what was associated with death, there are things that are not surprising, things like unstable housing, lower CD4 count, all of this matters. But 
coffee fell out as good. All right, so more evidence. All right, so we can counsel him about coffee. We can look at this. So we have this gentleman. He has these sort of looking labs. What additional staging is really medically indicated for this individual? No further staging. Routine ultrasound, fibro test, transient elastography, liver biopsy, or other. And some of you may not know what those terms mean, but we'll learn it by the end of the talk. I know many of you are familiar, so you can vote. Yeah. Going, this is more John Williams. Oh, this is Olympic. It's John Williams, is it? Did he do the Olympic? All right, let me know when we have enough votes. All right, interesting. So routine ultrasound, not a bad idea. Fibro test, not a bad idea. Transient elastography, many of you chose that. All right, before we move on, uh, just by show of hands, how many of you have access to what's called a fibro scan or transient elastography? What is that? You, you, you're, you can send your patients and receive this test. You do, okay, and you're from Georgia, right? Yeah, yeah okay. Um, what about South Carolina, you guys have them? Okay, yeah, some of you are nodding. Um, all right, liver biopsy, really low. Yeah. Yeah, it, when I say access, do, do they get in, like, in a timely fashion and all that? Just curious. Okay, good. Can I just say, just plug in, so you have a fibro scan in my clinic? Yeah. Right. That's fantastic. Wow. Right, right. Tell them not to have their Big Mac before, and we'll go over that. Okay. Right. By the way, there, there wasn't meant to be a specific right answer. I mean, for, for the, for, yep. Fantastic. Right, right. You're supposed to be fasting. Yeah, we'll go over this with, when we talk about fibro scan. All right, so let's meet a 23-year-old woman. Five-year history of uh, intravenous drugs, uh, tested two years earlier. So she's, you know, likely at best had this for four years or five years um, if it was her first exposure, but we know for about two years. You look at her numbers, and her BMI is not terribly high, the SGPT and OT, uh, the bilirubin and the platelets are 285,000. No significant alcohol use. What additional staging is medically indicated? So we'll go through the same option. All right. Are we going? What is this? Braveheart or oh, Titanic. Totally off. Yeah. Try again, sorry. All right. I need to move faster. All right, no further staging. So medically, I, I would actually argue that that is the case because she's young. She's not, doesn't have some um, known liver disease and she's female. All of those are not necessary. Now, you need the fibro test for your insurance approval, often, so you might be sending it. But uh, in terms of like what would, the chances that she's not F0 on these tests are very small. You have a question? Yeah. 
Yeah, yes. So these are sort of pretest questions. Yes, absolutely. So almost all pa patients should have staging. And I'm sorry the colors are washed out here. But it's required. Uh, some incorrectly require biopsy, although that's gone away in most states. And cirrhosis may be obvious. Liver biopsies, though, even though earlier in the question you, you all correctly said that's the best test, it's the most accurate test, there are problems with it in the sense of you can do a biopsy, and depending on where the needle goes through, especially if you just look on this slide, you could miss, you could call this more of an F2 and this solid F4. So there's sampling errors. There's oftentimes, if you're ever looking at a liver biopsy report, it's important to look at like the size of the biopsy, whether there's enough tissue, because it's more of a bronze standard rather than a gold standard. And we used to have debates over this in, in the hepatology world um, where I, I was an interloper. And they, they debate, like, do you need a biopsy or not? Because it's the best test. But the major argument against it was that even if you get it, oftentimes um, you know, it's not um, perfect. And the rates of biopsies have gone down at many centers. They're doing about one-tenth as many biopsies. And so the more you do it, the better you are. And so you know, as we're doing it less, you know, the, um, so you know, the pros are, you know, is it acceptable? Well, actually, it turns out it is if you ask patients or whatnot who eventually go through it. I mean, maybe a selected um, population. It rules out other etiologies like iron overload and other things. And you can look at the steatosis. And that's an important part often of the workup of NASH. Um, but again, I usually wait till after hep C. Um, don't bother with that other statement there about morphometric. That's too fancy. Um, but the cons are the acceptability. I'm about to show you really better options that are much more accessible, whether it's getting a free ride to this fiber scan clinic, the transunilistography, or doing a blood work. And again, it's a bronze standard. It's only sampling a very small portion of the liver, et cetera. So there are ways to kind of predict cirrhosis based on serum markers. The simplest are APRI and FIB4. Mike briefly alluded to these. But there are calculators based on AST, uh, AST, ALT, platelet count, and age. I like FIB4 a little better than APRI. And some insurers will accept a simple APRI as enough without the fibro test, which we'll go over, or the fibro scan. The fibro test is a little more complicated. You don't recognize these. These are not things that you're sending. And these are values of six different parameters that can put in a black box equation that's proprietary, so you can't just plug into a calculator. But in the end, it's, it's several hundred dollars. You know, it's somewhere between three to six, depending on the reimbursement. And, um, but they give you a score. And the score also says F0, F1, F1 and a half. You know, it goes up depending on the value. There are others as well, but this is the one that's most uh, available. Um, and so the APRI calculators, if you need a second website to learn, and you'll hear about three websites today. If you use those three, you, you can do a lot with hep C. There's this great one at the University of Washington, which has these calculators up at the top. And you just plug in their value. And it'll give you the value, and then it'll interpret it for you. So in the office, you can get an APRI score here and help prognose with the patient. This is an example of a FibroSure test. And it shows you these six different values. And then it'll give you a value. In this case, the fibrosis 0.12, no fibrosis. It falls in the range. Pretty simple to interpret. Now, these tests are better at the extreme ranges. So once you get into sort of this 0.3 to 0.5 point, you know, there's some inaccuracy there. But what you're really trying to do is identify people who have F3 plus or 4, because those are the ones where that prognosis matters. 
another important point is that some of these values can be confounded. So if you have someone, for instance, on atazanavir for HIV and it raises the bilirubin, that's an issue in terms of interpretation of this test. It drives up this score incorrectly. Yes? So when you use a lot of fiber scores, how do you interpret the test to make sure that you Yeah, I, I, so one key point is if in doubt, treat them as F4 because, yeah, because that, that's the correct thing to do because of that inaccuracy. It's not worth biopsying to distinguish F3 versus F4. And then F3, do you mean comparing? Yes. So all the official recommendations from my hepatology colleagues is to commit F3s to, to fibrosis. Now someone, you mentioned like there's regression of fibrosis, which can occur. The liver is a remodeling organ that can sort of recover to a certain extent. Um, there can be fibrosis regression. And in those cases, we see that with some of these scores getting better after treatment. But right now we don't know whether that um, means there's zero risk going forward. And so, um, you know, the rate of hepatocellular carcinoma is a couple percent per year um, without treatment, and then it goes down. The thing is, the rate of, of doing testing is um, still lower than overall, like, breast cancer rates or whatnot. So, like, you know, if you think about this, I tell, you know, patients, regardless of whether they're male or female, this is kind of like your mammogram for the liver. You know, you're just going to come in, it's usually going to be fine, and just get it checked out. So serum markers are acceptable, they're available. Even some are just from routine labs, and if an insurer will accept that, that's fantastic. Um, in Tennessee, they've tried to simplify things and use um, Defib4 especially to kind of help stratify patients. They have a simplification algorithm, so they don't necessarily need to come in for a fiber scan all the way. And then um, it's not particularly liver-specific. There are things that can confound it, as mentioned. It doesn't perform well in the middle, and sometimes that cost is too much. All right, um, I need to move a little faster because I somehow used up a lot of my time. But uh, the transient elastography, the fibro scan, it's a machine. It's actually a bit portable, although you know the way it is, you're not supposed to like take it off floors or whatnot. You can reel it around the floor, though, in theory, to different exam rooms. Usually, it just sits in one room, and you come in, and it's FDA approved. It's more and more available, and it's accurate again at the extreme. That's kind of where it's important, but it's accurate. If you hit a 12.5 cutoff, it's just what's usually used. That's, that's where we would start to really worry about cirrhosis. So you'll have patients, again, like that 12.1, and what do you do with that? And so generally, you're like, oh, I, I'm still going to kind of be careful with you. Um, the, uh, there's probes that can be used for persons with higher body mass. You've got to kind of ultrasound through the layer of fat that overlies the body, and so there's probes for that. And there's also a special attachment that can also assess for steatosis and NASH. So if you have that attachment, it's very useful for NASH. Widely used in Europe, validated, reproducible, excellent for cirrhosis, and the range of values may be useful for a prognosis. The problem is the initial upfront cost. It sounds like you've already invested in it, which is great, but it's hard to have one in every clinic. Um, and it is confounded by these factors, especially ascites, but if they have ascites, you kind of know they're cirrhotic already, so um, for the most part. Uh, food intake, huge, so you, they have to be fasting. So Patients may be waiting and taking a Big Mac and then waiting for their fiber skin and like, ah, oh, i got to wait a couple more hours. So, um, yeah, it's amazing. You can eat a Big Mac and then your liver actually feels a little stiffer. So the, the analogy of the stiffness measurement is uh, well, one recent, I used to use a different one, but you could use like um, Jell-O. Some of you may be too young to know what Jell-O is, but you know, you kind of put a mix and it's like all jiggly and whatnot. And so once it like gets ready, you can kind of press on it and it kind of jiggles right? Leave it out a while and don't eat it a few days, and it turns kind of hard. 
and then you hit it and it doesn't quite jiggle the same. And so that's the same sort of principle of this sort of sound wave that goes in and jiggles the liver. All right. There are adaptations to ultrasound machines that your radiologists may offer you that are technically a transient elastography as well. So the radiologists love it. They love to get patients in and get reimbursed for it nicely. Um, but um, uh, I find this a little bit less useful because they're kind of unwilling to call things like in this range. And so I like the fiber scan a little bit better because it gives you the value. Uh, my radiologist will just say it's not F2 or above. And it's like, oh, come on, you know, be a little more. But if, if they can find fibrosis, if, if, if this is an option for you. MR elastography, does any of you ever sent this? I get to send this because I can't figure out how much it costs. So the big proponents of these, this test, which is a very similar principle, it actually gives you a nice picture of the stiffness throughout the liver. And what's interesting is sometimes um, it can be variable. So this is showing a pretty um, nice liver here. But the main point is um, uh, they, can't, they won't tell me how much it costs, so I'm not going to send it because it for all I know, it's a couple thousand dollars. So. Um, but this is how it looks. It's beautiful pictures. And uh, one point is, like, fibrosis is variable, like in the middle stages. And so this is one reason we worry about F3s a little bit. Because, you know, A, if you did a biopsy, you might miss it. Um, can you have transformative events deep in here, but not in here? So that's why we tend to image, um, because there's variability. So it's an average weight of F3, but there's some F4 region, some F2 region. All right, so that's the pros and cons. I generally, I sat in talks where they promoted this, but um, again, due to cost, I think it's a little tough. These are prognos prognostic factors. So they're not only sensitive and specific, particularly for advanced fibrosis, F3 or above, or F4 cirrhosis. They have decent numbers in terms of area under the curve and operating characteristics for tests in terms of sort of sensitivity and specificity to determine things, but it, they're not 100%. So you got to apply it to the scenario. I mean, there are times it's discordant, and you're like a little worried about it. You might try the other test to try to figure things out. And that's part of the combined approach, where you're seeing some discordance, or they disagree. And that's one instance where you might do a liver biopsy. So, um, but oftentimes, they're in agreement, and you're happy in those settings. Child's uh, Pew score, or uh, CTP, um, is something you can also calculate, which is important for the prognosis of cirrhotic patients. The most po uh, patients, um, they get assigned different points, and then they're assigned A, B, or C, all right? So A, good prognosis, and that's the majority of cirrhotic patients. And this is just their mortality over three months. If you see values that put them in B, C, Look at the problems. There's high rates of mortality. That's when you're thinking liver transplant. You're trying to get them into centers where they might uh, improve this through um, liver transplant. The other score you can use is MELD. And again, there's a calculator at the University of Washington website, and you can look at the three-month survival for patients. So again, for patients who are distant from the centers that do liver transplant, sometimes you're stuck being the ones to monitor their decompensated liver disease. And it turns out that if you look at fibro test, and different cutoffs, or you look at liver stiffness, 9.5 versus a cutoff, it's prognostic. It's even prognostic above it. So that's why I like FibroScan, because if you go to like 12.5, there's a big difference between that and 20 and 30 in terms of like how stiff the liver is and also their future prognosis. Now, it turns out that I mentioned that these parameters do get better after cure. This is just one study showing that. There are multiple studies showing this. But we don't know the clinical significance of this yet. So we're still committing cured patients to that screening. So hepatocellular carcinoma, um, uh, big topic. 
F3, F4, these are the factors that are associated with it, older age, uh, African-American race, uh, lower platelet count, diabetes is a big one, um, maybe HIV for recent studies might be higher risk, but SVR does reduce the risk of HCC substantially, not to zero. Coffee I mentioned, imaging every six months, again, that six to 12 month range, you really wanna get it closer to the six months. Alpha-feta protein, my goodness, you ask hepatologists and their society doesn't recommend it because it has terrible characteristics, much worse than PSA and other sort of tests that you might use in primary care, much worse. And uh, you know, one third of cancers won't have a positive AFP. So nonetheless, about 60% of hepatologists seem to use it. They're like, ah, I still like to use it, even though the evidence doesn't support it. So just so you know, uh, it's kind of made a little comeback because so many people are using it. So this is my approach, basically, I think about that 23-year-old woman, and I'm like, you really don't need this test, but I'm gonna send it for your insurance. So I have something to check that box. Um, but then uh, the older patient, I mean, I think he has cirrhosis, he has portal hypertension, he has hep C, he's at the right age and whatnot. Um, and so, um, but I still off, may need a test just to prove it to an insurer. But I think about still doing a fiber scan for that patient, because it is further prognostic than what I can do just looking at the patient. Is it? a 14 or is it a 24? There's a difference. Uh, there's these other things that I kind of poo-pooed a bit, um, and then very few liver biopsies and the two six-month imaging for those with F3 or F4. Okay, so those are the take-home points. It's important to do this. Something I've learned, not through a formal hepatology. <laughs> None of us are um, in ID, went through that extra training for the most part. Many of us work close in, um, in, in uh, conjunction with our hepatology colleagues and make rapid referrals for those with cirrhosis. But many, many are also kind of happy to help, um, to have me help manage patients, particularly with co-infection and cirrhosis, because you know, some of those issues are kind of a little bit curveballs for them, and especially recent substance use and that sort of thing. So that's kind of where we've been. All right, so this is important. I hope I've taught you enough that you can get through those two, couple of websites that can help you with a patient in front of you. You can look at their platelet count, their ALT, AST, and give them a bit of information even before you put them on that van, or I don't know how they get there to Columbia for their fiber scan. All right, so um, we'll take Great. a question or two, and yeah, then I, break. Just, I know one of the questions on the uh, pretest was about a gal with a skin lesion that was sort of blistery, and it was on a sun-exposed area. I think most people recognize that as a PCT or per porphyria cutanea tarda, which is a sign of liver disease. So when you get that question, we didn't really cover it, so I'm saying it now. Yeah. Um, the test is urine uh, porphyrins is really what you do to diagnose that. I think that was answer D. I'm not getting too specific. Um, and, and so that's... that's we really uh, want to see it improve. But, the, other, but the cool thing we haven't mentioned yet is that when you have somebody who, let's say, has advanced liver disease and you cure their hep C, if they have other conditions associated with liver disease, like porphyria, PCT, or cryoglobulinemia, a lot of times those disorders will reverse and go away. And so that's kind of cool. If they have renal disease from other disorder, from other you know, antibody stuff, um, you can actually see that improve. Uh, so it's another reason to yeah. cure people. And those are the more urgent cases when you have, for example, cryoglobulinemia associated with HCV. You want to treat those people right away. You don't. You want to get that out of the picture as fast as you can. Yeah, another benefit of cure, which is less urgent, but there are definitely many of you have treated. Sounds like one to four patients, um, but you do this enough, and you'll meet the patient who honestly feels a lot better just yeah. when you take out that virus, and they're like, "Wow, 
this is what it's like to live without hep C, because they've, they've gone 10, 20 years without living with it. And their energy level's better, their thinking, their brain fog lifts. I don't promise that for patients, believe me, because mm -hmm. you don't want to be selling snake oil. But there are select right. patients who really do benefit quality of life-wise just from cure of the infection, and, and aside from the psychological idea that this is now out of their system. And another correlation between HIV and hep C is that that 100 billion to trillion viruses produced today is associated with some degree of chronic inflammation, which is part of the reason why cardiovascular disease is the number one killer, because it's just like with HIV, when you have unchecked viral replication, it's a contributor. So, yeah. Question? Over. I have a question. Um, I used to take four mm -hmm. vaccinations. It's not hard to get the fibrosis on that. I mean, yeah. it's very dependent on the AST and the, it is. And, and the ALT. Yeah. And I'm wondering, is it, does it overdiagnose cirrhosis or fibrosis? So the, the major thing that seems to happen if you follow AST and ALT over time is um, that the usual patient with lower levels of fibrosis will have ALT above AST, and then you'll see that flip. And that's very important for the calculation of the FIB4. Once it flips, it starts to rise. And so one thing to think about is, is there another confounder that could be raising AST, which is a less specific marker of inflammation, you know? So drinking's a big one, so you, if you can get them to reduce alcohol use, then yes, their FIB4 would probably look better. Now, um, because FIB4, again, you're, it, it's an imperfect thing, so I, I don't want to necessarily say that's the complete answer. There, there are ways it can be A, confounded, and also, um, you know, going forward, I think I usually don't mind that for the alcohol patients because you can motivate them. Say, look at the score. You know, I'm a little worried about your liver. You know, even if it's, you know, I don't want to send you for liver biopsy. I mean, they can if they want. Um, say, like, if I get a liver biopsy that scores well, I can drink my Coors Light. Um, you know, that's not usually how I manage patients. So, you know, I think it's still a motivator, I think, um, if, if you're seeing something that's a bit discordant there. Um, but um, these are all approximators. And they're much easier to get than liver biopsies and whatnot. And so that's why we're using it. And that's why liver biopsy centers, you know, they've gone down uh, uh, almost 90% in the last few years, largely because their hep C volume has disappeared. There's still lots of liver disease out there. So they're just using these, these parameters. Why does that need to be hospitalized? Mm -hmm. Is that Yep. Is there any other thing that's recommended? I know you mentioned the um, alpha fetoprotein is not reliable. No. Um, but if we do, if at some point maybe yep. someone had ordered a double and we saw an improvement, is yep. it something you want to check again or the fibro shore or the fibro scan? Is it something yep. that's necessary to document or just that to they're follow? feeling better. So, um, so again, it's a little bit about resourcing. So you can get a repeat fiber scan, and the numbers do look better. I, I kind of quickly went through that slide out of time. But people do lose points on that scale. And some, you might say, fall you know, from 14 to 11, and do you stop screening? And so that's kind of one question. Um, patients who we did the study, I mean, who got it, felt a lot better. They're like, oh, yeah, my liver's less stiff. That, that feels good. And so I, I, I don't know whether that's important enough clinically, other than other sort of harm reduction for the liver in terms of alcohol prevention for F3, F4, trying to minimize that, and as well as um, coffee and other things. Another topic I didn't bring up are herbals. It comes up sometimes. Um, the Chinese came up with milk thistle, and it's present in a lot of GNC um, products. That's kind of neutral, meaning when you take the 
milk thistle products in a standardized way doesn't seem to really help or hinder hep C or fibrosis progression. You can take a component of milk thistle and inject it, and you do see benefits, but that's not something that's approved or available. Marijuana is another big one. There's some older studies that showed that marijuana may be associated with more fibrosis. And if you look at the cannabinoid receptors, there's two in the liver, and there's one that would say, yes, more fibrosis. There's another one, if engaged, would say less fibrosis. When you look in studies, particularly from co-infected individuals who measure marijuana and fibrosis progression, it, again, seems to be neutral. So there really isn't a, um, a, a basis for especially sobriety restrictions surrounding marijuana and hep C. It just, it's not, there's no literature really to say that you need to stop so marijuana you could, to get So you through. could recommend taking milk thistle with four cups of coffee and then smoke a joint afterwards and you got it all covered. <laughs> well, they're neutral, they're not good. Like some patients right. heard, oh, it's not bad, that means good? <laughs> no. Uh, don't quote me on that. Uh, all right. It's good. So I, I think the, we, the, other, the other couple things um, uh, that, that we all should kind of keep in mind is that the transplant world is changing because hepatitis C used to be the number one cause um, of transplant, and now fatty liver is starting to overtake that in large part because we're having success with this. Um, so I think those things are, are important important to keep in mind. And the alpha-feta protein, you know, you mentioned it. All the hepatologists will tell you, no, no, it doesn't correlate. You don't get it. But you say, well, do you get it? You go, yeah, yeah, I get it because I just kind of like it. So it's kind of optional. But a lot of the hepatologists do follow that over time as a, a marker suggestive yeah. of we're more compliant. Like we took away our CD4 counts every three months, yeah, and, and we started did. doing that. Yeah. Whereas the uh, hepatologist was like, "Nah, I kind of still yeah. do it." So, right. So is it time for a break? Yep, we have a break until 10:55. Uh, we'll reconvene. We're trying to. Is that right? 10:55. Great. So uh, if you have questions for any of the speakers, come up and talk to us. Take a bathroom. Uh, bio break. <laughs>